coercion is a tough thing to touch. You know, it's not like I'm being coerced or I'm not coerced. Coercion is a spectrum. You know, it's clicks on a dial where you get closer and closer to coercion and incorporating public ritual, um, public displays of religion. This kind of stuff starts to get me nervous because it starts to press on that coercion button. And especially given that it's tough to know when exactly you've crossed the line, I am generally reluctant to embrace those kinds of those kinds of policies in in public schools. I'm Scott Kahn, and this is the Orthodox Conundrum. This is the Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. Several well-publicized events in the Orthodox world over the past year have brought the issue of the separation of church and state into sharp relief. These include Yeshiva University's refusal to recognize the YU Pride Alliance, a refusal which, one year ago, Judge Lynn Kotler of the New York County Supreme Court said was a violation of the New York City human rights law. The case is currently under appeal. Another important situation is the recent uproar over the apparent refusal of numerous Hasidic schools in New York to follow curricular guidelines established by state authorities. And of course, the question of judicial reform in Israel inevitably touches on questions of how much the Israeli government can impose religious law or provide legal exceptions to religious individuals and groups. In order to better understand some of the biggest questions surrounding church and state, I was honored to speak with Professor Michael Avi Helfand. We discussed several specific situations, including the YU Pride Alliance and the Hasidic school issue, to get past the often incorrect public perception and outline the actual legal issues in each case. We discussed whether private schools should be eligible for public funding, whether this might lead to government authorities dictating educational requirements that Orthodox schools won't be able to accept, and whether the government's mandating aspects of the curriculum is necessarily tied to funding in the first place. We also touched on the philosophy behind the separation of church and state, how much of it is rooted in the Constitution and how much is based on broad interpretation, the definition of core beliefs and even the word religion, and much more. We'll get to that conversation in just a moment. First, let me remind you to share this podcast, rate the Orthodox Conundrum, and write a review on Apple Podcasts, and let us know what you think on the Orthodox Conundrum discussion group on Facebook. Check out jewishcoffeehouse.com for the Orthodox Conundrum and other great podcasts, and remember to subscribe to them on your favorite podcast provider. Please subscribe to my new Substack, Orthodox Conundrum Commentary, where you can read my latest article, Get Out of the Ezrat Nashim. The link is in the description of this podcast, so sign up for your free subscription today. The Orthodox Conundrum is looking for sponsors, either to promote your business or organization, or in somebody's honor or memory. If you would like to reach thousands of listeners every week, write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com. Thanks to all of our Patreon subscribers who have access to bonus Jewish Coffee House podcasts, merch, and more. You should join our Patreon team too. The link is in the description of this podcast. Finally, if you don't have a podcast, you're missing out on the best new way to reach hundreds and thousands of engaged listeners. But if you want to start a podcast, you need to make sure that it's really good, both in terms of content and production values, so that you will be noticed among all the other podcasting options out there. 
If you have opinions that you want to share with a large group of people or a growing business that's looking for a great new marketing tool or an organization that's looking to reach hundreds and thousands of captivated listeners, you should have a podcast and one that is of the highest quality and we can help you make that happen. Contact me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jchpodcast.com to learn how we can help you make a high quality, effective and entertaining podcast. Michael Avi Helfand is the Brendan Mann Foundation Chair in Law and Religion and co-director of the Newbar Institute for Law, Religion, and Ethics at Pepperdine Caruso School of Law, visiting professor in Oscar M. Rubhausen, Distinguished Fellow at Yale Law School, and Senior Fellow at the Shalom Hartman Institute. In addition, he was recently appointed as the Senior Legal Advisor of the Orthodox Union's Teach Coalition, which advocates for non-public school funding and resources throughout the United States. Professor Michael Avi Helfand, thank you very much for joining me today on the Orthodox Conundrum Podcast. Great to be here with you. So as you know, I live in Israel, and well, I believe that Jewish ideas and values should have influence to some degree over public policy here. I have strong reservations over the proposition that halakha, Jewish law, particularly in the ritual sphere, should be mandated and imposed by Israeli law and legal fiat. And as I've said before on this podcast and elsewhere, I think that mandating religious law is probably the single biggest danger to Torah Judaism today in Israel. I know that the United States has problems. It's not a perfect society. But one area where I really respect the way that the U.S. government is run is the constitutional separation of church and state or the establishment clause, where there can be no establishment of religion. I'm curious about your opinion about the separation of church and state in the United States and how far it should go. As we know, there are different interpretations of what that means, and I'd like to hear yours. Yeah, so separation of church and state is a a real hallmark um, of constitutional thinking. Those words don't actually appear in the Constitution or any of the amendments. They're captured in this thing known as the Establishment Clause, the idea that um, government shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. And, you know, as you've already alluded to, lots of interpretations. It's super ambiguous. What's an establishment of religion? Who knows what that might be? You know, I've got my own view, which is what you asked for. Um, That's right. Which kind of thinks about issues that come up in this context in in like different buckets. So you mentioned like forcing ritual. You know, that's something that the that the founding fathers um, really pushed back against. The idea that... Um, Religion was value, valuable to the extent that it was voluntaristic, this kind of impulse of voluntarism. Like religion is valuable, valuable to society, valuable to God, um, to the extent that it's voluntary. So kind of coerced religion doesn't quite work. But, you know, that that only tells us a little bit. There, there are these other kind of puzzles and issues. You know, on the one hand, you have certain kinds of issues, separation of church and state. A lot of the can government fund religious institutions and then you have, you know, different kinds of cases like what kind of symbols can there be crosses or Ten Commandments on government property? What about prayer in public schools? Each one of these kinds of cases has different kinds of values behind it. And if I were trying to boil down my view, I ultimately think that separation of church and state is intended or ought to be deployed in order to uh, mean that everyone's treated with respect to religion uh, neutrally. Um, everyone has equal access to funding. Everyone is treated on equal terms by their public schools. Everyone um, gets to feel like they have an equal share in the public square. Okay, well, is that, and 
again, I'm speaking very much as a non-constitutional scholar, but as you mentioned before, the term separation of church and state does not appear in the Constitution. I believe it was first said by Thomas Jefferson, the wall of separation between church and state. And I would think that that concept, which again, is not in the Constitution per se, is an interpretation, perhaps his interpretation of what that Establishment Clause means, but that would mean that almost a maximalistic type of separation more than what you're suggesting. Are you saying that you're saying something different from Jefferson or are you actually interpreting him? Yeah, it's a, it's a fun question to know, uh, to think about what Jefferson would think about some of these issues. Yeah, I, I'm probably, I describe myself as trying to, I think everyone thinks they're trying to um, blaze a middle path, right? Um, <laughs> it just depends like what goalposts we want to use. But, uh, you know, to me, um, there are a lot of folks, uh, the American Jewish community, for example, we, we were the biggest advocates in some ways around separation of church and state in the 60s and 70s. Um, and so much of the American Jewish community were absolute separationists. They had this view, the American Jewish Congress, American Jewish Committee, Anti-Defamation League, that church and state, religion and state needed to be kept as far apart as possible, absolutist. And so that meant no funding of religious institutions under any circumstances, no prayers, whether the prayers were coercive or whether they were voluntary, no religious symbols on government property, um, really trying to do everything in their par power to enact legislation and to promote uh, court decisions that would keep church and state completely far apart. And there have been a lot of dissenters over years from that from that view. There are those who kind of like pick at this and say, no, we need a little bit more religion in the public square. Some religion is important because of what it does for society. There are other people like me who really think um, when it comes to church and state in terms of neutrality, it's not that we need to keep church and state separate. It's that we can't establish a religion, a particular religion or religion over non-religion. But if we can find ways to, you know, enact rules and doctrines and policies that make all people of faith and people of no faith at all feel like they're on equal terms. Um, they have equal standing when it comes to the public square. That's the kind of thing, you know, I'm in favor of. Maybe like a really good example, if you're looking for like, a, where does this cash out? Oh, cash out is probably a good term. Um, the funding question is probably the clearest version of this. The American Jewish community, um, before kind of orthodox advocacy really got its sea legs in the 50s and 60s, really pushed for no funding ever. And, you know, orthodox advocacy, both for reasons of principle and reasons of pragmatism, said, no, 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 no. If we can treat everybody equally, this isn't a establishment of religion. If we say every school, every private school can get funding, but religious schools should also be able to get that on equal terms. This isn't a separation problem because everyone is being treated neutrally. And that's probably one of the biggest fissures when it comes to this question. You know, what exactly does the First Amendment mean when it wants separation between church and state? It's very interesting for me growing up in the 1970s and 1980s in Massachusetts, coming from a background where I was always indoctrinated with the idea that, of course, no money can possibly go to Maimonides or Solomon Schechter or any of the other parochial Jewish schools in the area, because that would be terrible. That's against the Constitution. That's how I was brought up. And even today, when I realize that it may not be what most people think or what all people think, it's still hard for me to get past that simply because it was so ingrained in me. But I am curious about the nature of funding and whether strings are attached by definition. In other words, if we do accept money from the government, let's say a Torah Mosorah school, a co-ed modern Orthodox school, any kind of school, what does that mean when we take money from the government does that mean that they have a say in anything that we do as educators? Yeah, so there's this doctrine. It's called the Unconstitutional Conditions Doctrine. 
Um, it's terrible. It's like a, it's a hot mess when it comes to constitutional law. So people don't really love to talk about it. But, you know, on the one hand, there's this, there's this constitutional idea that if you can't do something as a matter of the First Amendment or as a matter of the Constitution, there's some rule or policy that's unconstitutional. You can't also use money. It's not just that you can't do it directly, but you can't move, use um, typically use money in order to try to generate that same kind of outcome. So I can't like buy your constitutional rights. That being said, you know, there are strings that government could, in principle, put on funding programs. There's actually um, just this week some active litigation in the U.S. as to the extent to which you can what you can actually put strings on. And here may be a couple of good guidelines on it. You know, on the one hand, government can't put strings on government funding that target religion to target religion is unconstitutional. So I can't try to, like, develop some set of strings that it's very clear when you stare at them, it's like, well, I know what you're doing. You're really going after religious schools and trying to get them to do things because now you know that they're getting money for uh, they're getting government money. Uh, on the other hand, if you just have you know certain kinds of policies that work across the board for all private institutions when you give out funding, that's probably constitutional. So there probably are some set of strings that government can put on funding programs that it makes available to all private institutions. I think that's right. Can you give some examples of what some of those restrictions or requirements would be when it comes to schools, let's say? Yeah, I mean, you know, so, some of the hot button issues that uh, currently are going on in the U.S., I would say one big one is questions um, revolving around anti-discrimination law. Um, I say that, yeah, you can have this funding, but uh, you can't discriminate on the basis of and then kind of, you know, fill in the blanks. Um, other kinds, you know, that's pretty um, important is going, going on in the Jewish community. This isn't quite how the litigation goes, but obviously there's been a lot of focus on curricular requirements in New York and um, Hasidic and Haredi schools, the extent to which um, they adopt or um, have satisfied what New York expects of them in terms of the education they provide. You know, you could imagine a universe where funding was made available on condition that you taught certain uh, a particular curriculum. That would be another kind of issue. And so in each of these cases, you know, one of the major focuses, at least with respect to the First Amendment, you'd want to make sure that you had certain kinds of requirements, certain kinds of strings that weren't going after religion in particular, but were really being applied across the board. That's probably like a good first cut at the issue. Well, I'm a little bit confused because... Once you have some restrictions, like, for example, anti-discrimination laws. Okay, so you can tell my high school, Maimonides. Maimonides, you can no longer discriminate on the basis of religion. That sounds like a reasonable thing to say, but Maimonides discriminates by definition on the basis of religion. They only admit Jewish students. So how do you, how do you navigate that? Yeah, 100%. So as I said, you know, the kind of targeting religion is probably a good first cut. Um, let me give you a second cut. So there, there's the second issue, like generally the First Amendment is read to mean you can't target religion. But there's the second set of like uh, protections that afforded religious institutions. In the U.S., we call it like uh, church autonomy. Sometimes in some contexts, it cashes out as something called the ministerial exception. Here's the basic idea that religious institutions over some subset of internal decision making rules that they have, some subset of them, they have this kind of heightened protection. Uh, here's like the clearest example. Think about like your average Orthodox synagogue in the United States. It decides it needs a rabbi, right? So it opens up a search. And as part of the search that it opens up, it says, uh, yeah, everyone apply. And then, well, do you mean everybody? Well, no, you mean men, right? You don't mean women for your average American Orthodox Jewish synagogue. And 
there's a federal law that prohibits prohibits uh, em, uh, employers from discriminating on the basis of sex when it comes to employment opportunities. So how can a synagogue, how can a shul say, uh, listen, we're only going to hire men? Doesn't that violate federal law? One way to think about this is and you know, the Constitution, there are also statutory protections. The Constitution says, listen, there's this thing called the ministerial exception. When a, a religious institution hires and fires ministers, it's protected from all these laws because it has to be in control of these kinds of core decisions that it makes for its religious community. And that kind of makes sense. You can kind of see how that works. And that kind of idea that even though you have these rules that float about and statutes that prohibit certain kinds of discrimination, um, also probably would cover things like, um, I don't know, decision who your members are and maybe who your students are. Um, these are the kinds of decisions that religious institutions make that run to the very identity of the institution, the core decisions it makes about, you know, who's going to participate in this enterprise, that it's probably has a First Amendment right to do free from government control. Now, once you think about it that way, it's unlikely that you could put a string on that requires a religious institution to forego those core kind of church autonomy rights. I hope that made sense. There was a lot going on in there. But you can't tell somebody, listen, now, if you want this money, you, you have to hire female rabbis or you have to have non-Jewish students, because ultimately in those instances, you'd be cutting against a certain kind of First Amendment right. That's a bit too far. You said a lot, which is very important, and we are going to get to some practical cases too. But before we get there, as we're Poirich Ba'avir right now talking about theoretical cases, there are a couple of things you said, which I still have a hard time really putting my finger on. The first of them is this, which is you talked about core beliefs or core values. And that word core, I don't know what it means. I can decide as a religious functionary that anything is core. I mean, almost to take the Abravernel's criticism of the Rambam's 13 Ikari Amuna. He says, what do you mean? Everything in the Torah is one of the Ikari Amuna. Now I can extend that and say everything in every Gemara and every Medrash, that's Nikar Amuna. And if one of them violates statutory law on some level, I should have the ministerial exception. How do we make sure from the government's perspective that that doesn't happen? Yeah, it's a great question. And maybe I'll use a different C word. Constitutive is probably a better word, although it's a bigger word. Um, can you explain what that means? Yeah, sure. Like um, there are certain things that religious institutions do that constitute the community. And this is kind of what a lot of courts have said about who is and isn't uh, what, you know, a minister or kind of for Jewish purposes, a rabbi. The idea that who represents the institution and speaks its message, sometimes courts will say that's the lifeblood of a religious institution, of a house of worship. And so it's not like, is this theologically important or not important? But it's the way in which um, certain people within a religious institution are vital for constituting the community. Like having a leader who says what you care about, that's really important to having a religious community. Uh, hopefully that makes like a little more sense. And if you also think about selecting like who are the people who get to be part of the community, you know, that's also a big, a big piece of it. It's not whether or not the particular particular religious doctrine or theological issue, you know, how important is that? That courts can't figure out, at least constitutionally, they're not allowed to figure that out in the United States. But there are certain kinds of decisions about constituting the religious community that I strongly suspect a court in the United States would say, that goes to the autonomy of creating the institution. And to have to trade those rights in, in order to get funding that's available to everybody else, that might be, that's likely to be a constitutional problem. Okay. 
I think I understand better now. My other question is kind of fundamental, and perhaps it's a silly question, but I'd like to define the word religion, because perhaps in the days of the Founding Fathers, that was an obvious idea. They knew what religion was. Today, I don't think anyone knows what religion even means. Anything can be a religion. How do I decide what's called a religious institution or a religious organization such that it gets such exemptions or ministerial exemptions, and what's just a club or a group of people doing something together. I, I mean, for example, are Red Sox fans a religion? Someone could argue that. Yeah. So my my best answer to you is good luck. Keep me posted. <laughs> Nobody really knows how to do this. That's that's the true answer to the question. Um, figuring out what religion is is super duper hard. Sometimes you'll have courts making reference to religion has something to do with the supreme being, but sometimes it doesn't, but most of the time it does. And so, you know, you'll have like hallmarks, but Courts do, a, I'd say, a pretty non-fantastic job of figuring it out. And as a result, there has been litigation over time. You know, I don't know if you've ever uh, gone down the rabbit hole of uh, pastafarianism and the Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monster. Um, these are fun little things. I actually have not. So Okay. Well, I don't know if you really want to, but <laughs> maybe you're getting a sense. They have their own Ten Commandments. They make references to the, you know, the Supreme Being's noodly appendage. The goal here is to try to show the way in which you can um, manipulate the concept of religion and take it so far and then show up in court and ask for certain kinds of protections. Like, um, I want to wear a colander on my head while taking uh, a picture for my driver's license. Normally you can't. I want to wear the colander on my head. I'm a pasta farian. You, you get the idea. Uh, yeah. So uh, you can see how you could stretch this thing and you could create problems and like all good concepts, just saying to my teenager the other um the other day we were i took him to the airport he's he's in israel for the summer and he we were talking about little arguments here and there and i'm like you know line drawing arguments aren't really that interesting to me they're they're hard you know all concepts are complex concepts and we have to engage in line drawing and we have good intuitions but sometimes on the border we don't know the reality is you know thankfully i guess first amendment litigation hasn't really had a deep problem identifying real world cases where it's how to, had to figure out what isn't isn't and isn't a religion now by contrast i'll say it's different when it comes to what is a religious institution hmm. now that that's actually been like pretty significant litigation in the united states one of the biggest issues like in the last 10 years is like whether for-profit entities um can also have religious rights uh, this is a case of Hobby Lobby, this craft store that said, like, we don't want to participate in the Affordable Care Act, this uh, insurance program, Affordable Care Act's um, what they call the contraception mandate, this idea that you had to include in, uh, in the insurance certain forms of covered contraception for your employees. You know, some people said, well, you're a for-profit entity. You're not about uh, exercising religion. You're about making money. So, like, you don't exercise religion. You shouldn't be protected by the First Amendment. For a lot of, I'd say, Orthodox Jews, this is, of course, kind of funny. I, I shouldn't say funny. It, it felt strange. It felt strange because, I don't know, maybe you're different. I always feel like I have lots of religious responsibilities when it comes to questions of commerce. There's a whole long list. There might even be a quarter of the Shulchan Aruch. So, yeah, it's <laughs> like, really? Because, I don't know, that's just life for me. Like, of course, there's, there are religious obligations here. But in the U.S., you know, it's it's different. That's not kind of quite how people, a lot of people think about religion. And so um, as a result, there was a lot of litigation about this. Ultimately, like for-profit entities, the Supreme Court thought also in principle 
um, could potentially exercise religion, obviously depends on the case. So the category of what is a religious institution has kind of been expanded. But that was a ma- that was a matter of massive, massive litigation here in the U.S. Is that also relevant to the case? I think it was in Indiana with the baker who wanted to refuse to make a wedding cake for a gay couple. Is that the same idea? Uh, similar Colorado, but, you know, same. Oh, base. Colorado. Yeah, all good. Yeah. Master one of the states. Yeah, it happened. Uh, it's it's one of the 50. I'm pretty confident about it. Yeah. So you did have this baker in Colorado who said that they um, uh, he did not want to bake a cake for a, uh, a, a a cake celebrating a same sex wedding. It was a funny case because at the time that he didn't want to do so, that he refused to do so, um, Colorado itself wouldn't recognize same sex weddings. And it was almost as if you had this Colorado law saying, on the one hand, you must bake this cake. On the other hand, we ourselves won't recognize same-sex couples. And in fact, the baker himself said, I I thought this was permissible because that's what Colorado is doing, which is, I guess, why the name of the state might matter. Um, Yeah. (laughs) So you have this cake and and, and this case, and and, and no doubt it's the same kind of issue where you have a for-profit entity that doesn't want to abide by prevailing laws, anti-discrimination laws in Colorado that prohibited businesses open to the public from saying, um, I'm not going to serve you because of your... Um, sexual orientation. I think that's right. And so you certainly have seen an expansion in all these cases um, of like what counts as a religious institution. Slightly different question than what counts as religion. Right. Okay. Thank you for explaining that. That makes a lot of sense to me. I want to go back to the funding question. And a good example is that big case that was reported in the New York Times about the Hasidic schools in New York that were not following certain curricular mandates of the state. I don't really know enough about the case. Maybe you can explain it to me. But I do wonder if it was connected to the funding question, because that's something which I haven't quite understood. Is it that these schools were receiving government funding and yet refusing to follow government guidelines when it comes to curriculum? Or is it that they were receiving funding and it wasn't necessarily connected anyway legally? Or is it that they weren't receiving funding, but they still have to follow curricular guidelines. What exactly was the story over there? Yeah, there's there's a common misconception that all these um, schools that um, were pushing back, they could really just avoid the curricular requirements of New York State if they just stopped taking the money. It's actually not true. So, you know, here's how this works. You know, for over 100 years in New York, um, there's been a rule on the books that says non-public schools need to provide a quote-unquote substantially equivalent education to that being provided in the pub in the public schools. Now, um, this is great because like all legal issues, it starts with a couple of words, whether it's separation of church and state, substantial equivalence, a religious institution. Nobody knows what the words means. Nobody's really sure what it means to have an education that's substantially equivalent. Is that about outputs? Is that about inputs? Like you could imagine lots of different things that the ways in which an education might be equivalent. It could be hours, uh, hours in school. Yeah, it could be the inputs. You know, how many hours are you putting into each student? Or it could be like, well, how do they do on the tests, right? You can imagine different ways to think about this. You know, words it sounds meaningless on its own. Yeah. And by design, by the way, there have been old New York cases that said like the regime was intentionally flexible in order to make sure that it could kind of massage differences between religious institutions, religious schools and their the educational regime. The more detailed you got, the more likely you'd end up with some sort of conflict. So it, the here here kind of the fuzziness of it, I th- it sounds like it was um, by design, you know. But increasingly, there's been pressure um, brought to bear on New York um, on New York State and New York State Education Department to impose requirements on all non-public schools to put together a list of um, courses 
and a list of, uh, you know, exactly uh, of curricula that all non-public schools are actually going to make sure that you teach. And this is what's happened over the past few years. You've had New York State Education Department increasingly trying to find a set of curricular requirements that that non-public schools have to teach. Now, it had a lot of things already on the books. If you kind of poked around um, New York's education code, there are lots of things that you're already required to, to teach. Um, there's phys ed, there's civics. Um, there was a requirement to teach um, the contents of the New York State Constitution. There's lots of stuff about um, arson prevention, uh, all these various um, rules on the books that this is what you need to be teaching in order to be uh, to, to be a school, whether public or private, uh, in order to be a school in New York State. The New York State Education Department recently said, listen, we're going to impose new regulations, and these regulations are going to be used to check schools, non-public schools, to see, have you done your work? Have you taught all the things that already exist on the books? Have you taught all these things? And if not, we're going to have a process with which we evaluate you. We are going to have a process that if you fail, we're going to give you notice. And if you continue to fail in adapting your curriculum and adopting these requirements, we're going to close you down. And everyone who continues to go to that school is going to be a truant. And I guess then in theory, their parents could be criminally negligent. Um, you're not a school. And it has nothing to do whether or not you're taking money or not. Um, these are the requirements. This is how we're implementing them. And if you fail to abide by these rules, we're going to shut you down. That's kind of the crux of the of the case. Very interesting. Let me ask you, Avi, is it also true that if a school does take funding, in practice, the government is more likely to hold to a more literalist understanding of those terms of an equivalent education. In other words, what I mean is that once I'm taking money from the government, are they less willing to massage it and say, well, you're kind of meeting the requirements. You know, it may not be uh, history, but it is Jewish history, so that's good enough. Or does it not matter? Are they completely separate offices, so to speak? Yeah, I mean, I share your instinct. Like, you'd like to, what, what really kind of is, you know, your instinct is, listen, if you're not taking our money, we're going to do our best to work with you because overall we want, we're going to try to get you through the day, but we should get, once we're paying for something, we should get a little bit more for our money. We should exactly. be able to dictate some sort of terms here. I think your instinct is what a lot of people um, have. And it's part of what has chafed, I would say in some corners of uh, the New York Jewish community that, you know, New York might have gone down that path in order to encourage um, various uh, schools to like up their game when it comes to their general studies curriculum, meaning don't bring the hammer of we're going to close you down. But, you know, you should really listen to these rules because, you know, we're willing to trade it for some degree of funds. You might think of it as carrots versus sticks. That is not what New York State has done, the New York State Education Department. It has, as it stands, um, kind of brought or said it plans to bring the hammer whether or not you take the money. And this is obviously, this is what's generated a new round of litigation. And, you know, very interesting. I can say a little bit about the first court opinion on the topic, but, you know, it's really brought it to a head because there's no easy out for these schools. They either adopt the curriculum, um, which, you know, I would want that curriculum for my kid, but not everybody, you know, shares my views on the best way to educate a child. Um, but, you know, these schools don't want it. So if they don't want the curriculum, then they just have to, they have to go to court with the state. There's no like, let's push off the money and everything will be okay. Okay, that's very interesting. In terms of requirements, one thing which I think a lot of people are nervous about is 
the changing mores when it comes to sex, for example, and for example, the proposition that a same-sex marriage is morally equivalent to and just as good as a heterosexual marriage. I wonder if there's going to be curricular requirements for parochial schools to have sexual education of a sort, which might violate that any given religion, Judaism or otherwise, their tenets and beliefs. Do you think that's likely or possible? Um, yeah, I think that I think you may see things like that. You know, currently, a lot of states, what they have is they have certain kinds of requirements. And then sometimes they get um, subsumed on, under like sex ed um, or something like that. And what you'll often have is exemptions built into the rules for religious institutions. But, you know, we may see things like that. And, you know, one piece of this is, you know, there's a First Amendment right about, you know, religious liberty, religious freedom. We've talked a little bit about the autonomy that religious institutions have. But, you know, there's another piece of it. Also, the 14th Amendment in the United States protects the right of parents to control the upbringing of their kids. And in a lot of these school disputes, that's where a lot of the constitutional protections come from. So, you know, there have been um, there's, you know, one case during COVID here in the U.S. where private school parents said you can't force our kids to be on Zoom. We should have a right to have an in-person education. We should have a right as parents to dictate um, the manner in which our children are educated. And actually, there initially, there was a federal court that said, yeah, that's correct. Ultimately, the case got vacated, the, the decision got got um, vacated because it was moot because the challenges of COVID were over and we don't, uh, you know, we don't just give advisory opinions, there has to be a real controversy going on. Okay, fine. But the basic premise is correct that ultimately parents have a right to control um, the upbringing of their children. There's some there's some 14th Amendment right that states can't just do whatever they want. And so I suspect in a lot of these disputes, parents will assert this 14th Amendment right. They say, yeah, I get it. You've got this whole educational program that you want to implement, but you're running roughshod over my 14th Amendment right to like make certain kinds of decisions about what my children learn. And I suspect in private schools, they'll be able to assert that right successfully. Now, Avi, you're working with the OU now to help lobby to give government funding to parochial schools, to Torah Masora schools, to modern Orthodox schools, to various schools that are that are religious. And even though in New York State, you just said, it's not true that they tie funding to curricular requirements, you implied, at least where I understood, that that may be true other places, that should other states or cities give money to a school, they might say there are certain requirements. So how worried are you that in advocating for funding, you might also be allowing the fox to get into the hen house and force schools to do things that they just don't want to do? Or are you relying on the 14th Amendment to protect those parents from having to deal with that? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Something something I think quite a lot about. So like, I, I think about the questions in the following order. You know, right now, as it stands, there are tons and tons of programs throughout the United States, uh, funding programs available for various kinds of nonprofits and for private schools generally um, that exclude religious institutions on their terms. They just say, like, everyone can get this money unless you're religious. And if you're religious, you need not apply. And, you know, that goes back to you know our early conversation about what does separation of church and state mean? And for a long time, the Supreme Court thought that meant you can't give any money to a religious institution. And so people wrote those exceptions or those exclusions into laws all over the United States again and again and again. And they exist on the books. And, you know, over the last five, six years, you know, the Supreme Court has made crystal clear you can't actually exclude religion from government funding programs. If there's a secular program with secular objectives that you're going to provide, you know, to all these different kinds of nonprofits, I'll give you an example, like historic preservation grants, 
anything old that's old and important gets to get a historic preservation grant. You can't then say, oh, you're religious. You are old. You are important. And you would have gotten this money. But turns out you're religious. We're not giving you that money. That kind of exception now is understood by the Supreme Court to violate the First Amendment. So cut number one for me is is this. Those rules all over the United States that exclude religious institutions from existing government funding programs, I think it's vitally important to get rid of all those exclusions. I've got like, we have a lawsuit out here for um, ways in which religious institutions in California are prohibited from being state certified special needs schools, a lawsuit in uh, New Jersey about historic preservation grants and how those don't include religious institutions. And, you know, my first, the thing that really motivates me to get into this kind of work is the idea that, you know, this kind of religious discrimination is problematic, not just because it takes funding dollars away from religious institutions. I think the way in which we've woven in these exclusions of religion into laws around the United States undercuts the equal standing and equal citizenship of religious uh, religious citizens around the United States and Jewish citizens. It means that like, because of our faith, we lose out on generally available government benefits. And that's wrong. It, it, it's a way of undermining, uh, undermining our equal citizenship. And so step number one is, I think that's got to go. And so I'm, I'm, you know, I've gotten involved in this work, because I think that's, that's vitally important. Once you push that way, of course, you know, then your question comes into play, right? It's like, okay, so now everyone's going to realize they can't do this thing anymore where they discriminate against religion. And we'll fight for that. And we should fight for that on principle, because even if there are no dollars at stake, it, it's a way of, of marking our equal citizenship in the United States. And so for that reason, I think it's important just by itself. You're going to get the pushback that you described. It's going to be, well, now maybe we need to put certain kinds of strings. Now, if those strings target religion, I think we should go after them for the same reason. Religion should never be targeted. Um, to do so is to undermine our equal citizenship. But there may be other kinds of strings that may get put on that would present some sort of problem. And as you know, there are different kinds of, you know, I've already outlined like what a litigation strategy looks like, right? You know, you've got your 14th Amendment, right? When it comes to schools, they can't go out and target you based on the First Amendment. And there may be ways to kind of push back and say there are certain kinds of strings that you shouldn't engage in. And ultimately, if there are other kinds of strings that governments choose to put on certain forms of government funding, it could be, I think it's relatively unlikely that they'll be particularly significant. So then you let the money go. And that's okay. It's okay. There's, we don't need to collect every single dollar for every single program that might be otherwise available. You know, that's not the goal. The goal ultimately is to say, one, if there's a secular objective that the state has, we as religious citizens should be able to participate in the program. And you shouldn't exclude us because we have faith commitments. Step number two, we should encourage them to make them available and make it actually possible for us to, for us to use those funds. And I do think we'll be largely successful on that. And if on the margins, there are some things we have to let go, that's okay. I'm okay with that. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. Let me ask you about the flip side. Something we mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, talking about prayer in public schools, for example, which you said is, you know, when I was growing up, that, that was terrible. That was the worst thing imaginable. And now I'm not sure what you think about it. I am wondering if you think that prayer in public schools may not be such a bad thing. And let me give an example. Let's say you have a school district in a place like New Square, which is, as far as I know, entirely Hasidic. There are no students in the public school who are not Orthodox Jews. Would you say that it is wrong for them to have a public school where there is prayer in the public school? How do you navigate that? Your line drawing is going to be tough. So... I'll tell you, you know, the principles I'm dedicated to, you know, neutrality, 
and also um, to make sure that we don't have coercive religion. And I get nervous about that. You know, you're seeing now in the United States, there is no question, given the way in which the current Supreme Court has kind of shrunk what the Establishment Clause prohibits. Um, I think you're having a lot of school districts and are playing around like, oh, what does this new regime look like? Is this like the 1940s again and 1950s when you did have prayer in public school? You know, what options are actually on the table um, from the perspective of the First Amendment? And I worry about that because, you know, once you have government institutions, which public schools are promoting prayer or incorporating prayer into the school day, you start inching closer to circumstances, especially depending on, you know, where their kids are up to developmentally, elementary school, middle school, high school, where, you know, you may have instances where students feel like they should or must or ought to participate in ritual um, that isn't voluntary. Coercion is a tough thing to touch. You know, it's not like I'm being coerced or I'm not coerced. Coercion is a spectrum. You know, it's clicks on a dial where you get closer and closer to coercion and incorporating public ritual, um, public displays of religion, this kind of stuff starts to get me nervous because it starts to press on that coercion button. And especially given that it's tough to know when exactly you've crossed the line, I am generally reluctant to embrace those kinds of those kinds of policies in, in public schools. Let's move on to something else related to what we've been speaking about. I want to talk to you a little bit about what happened at Yeshiva University in the past year with the attempted establishment of a club supporting LGBTQ students, the university's pushback against it, and then the whole brouhaha that erupted. Obviously, it's partially connected to funding, I believe, though I could be wrong, that it started in the early 70s when, no, it didn't, you're, you're shaking your head. Oh, I didn't know what you meant. No, no, no. Sorry, sorry. That's right. Okay, it began in the early 70s when Rabbi Dr. Samuel Belkin, the president of Yeshiva University, effectively decided to declare that YU was a non-denominational university in exchange for funding from New York State. Rav Soloveitchik was famously very upset about this. He had a public discourse about it where he said, I see ghosts. And in the end, despite this public feud that they had on this very issue, President Belkin won because he was president of the university. And I think that all came home to roost. Rob Salvechik's fears actually took place 50 years later when this exact case took place. I'm not taking sides on who was right. That's not what I'm talking about. But could you maybe lay out some of the issues and tell me if I presented it correctly? So let's think about what the issues are over here. Again, you know, you saw me shaking my head. Why am I shaking my head? Because everything you said was right. And I was just uh, I was uh, being presumptuous. Uh, yeah, um, presumptuous. <laughs> what are you going to say next? But um you know, what's the issue? The issue here is, by the way, like that baker you were talking about. Um, here's the deal. A lot of states, and we should be candid about where these rules come from. These rules come from 1960s America. They're part of the civil rights movement. The idea that you had in all these various corners of the United States, especially the South, um, businesses that were open to the public that um, would not serve people um, because they were Black. Okay. Now, in theory, there's nothing in the Constitution that prohib- that tells a private institution what to do. Constitution is all about what government entities can and can't do. So what you have is civil rights legislation, states, federal, that say, listen, business is open to the public. Once your business open to the public, you can't discriminate on the basis of blank. And it started with on the basis of race, right? That's kind of how these things and national origin and creed and all these things. Business is open to the public. And, you know, as time moves on, you know, the list has grown longer. 
ways in which businesses open to the public can't discriminate. And increasingly, cities, states um, include in the list of things that a business open to the public can't discriminate in the provision of services. The list has now included in a lot of jurisdictions, sexual orientation and gender identity. Now, let's think about Yeshiva University. Yeshiva University is a business open to the public. Um, you can apply, you can be accepted, and you give them money in exchange for a service. And what it means to say that you're not, um, you're discriminating the provision of services, it would in, in principle include, well, you can get lots of things at this university, but some of the services or some of the benefits that the institution provides aren't for you. And so this is how we get to this uh, litigation of, well, your business is business open to the public, but you're not allowing um, this particular club, you allow lots of other student clubs, but this club, that uh, LGBTQ club, um, you're not recognizing that club and therefore you're violating the public accommodations law in New York City. So that's kind of, that's the crux of the of the case. And that's why, you know, when you say it that way, note that I didn't say the word funding, right? I noticed so, that. Yeah, you just can't, you can't do it. Now you're still right. I'll, I can tell you why, but like in theory, that's the rule. So, so how does this go from here? Then if what you just said is accurate, what Professor Belkin established should have nothing to do with taking money or not. It should be the reality that has nothing to do with any decisions. It's imposed from without. That's exactly right. But here's the puzzle. Like all good laws, something that every um, lawyer and, and halachist is familiar with, of course, there are exceptions. Because um, what would a rule be without exceptions? It would be no fun. So <laughs> there are lots of exceptions to this. And one of the exceptions is if you're a um, religious corporation organized under New York's education law. What on earth does that mean? Uh, there's a lot there, but you know, New York, um, Yeshiva University is organized under as an educational corporation. And uh, as a result, you know, it also is, I mean, a lot of people thought at least if I'd asked you beforehand, do you think Yeshiva University is a religious institution? You probably would have said, yeah, of course. Like, that's why people go there. They're there because it's a it's a Jewish university. Um and you would, you know, you stare at this this exception. You're like, oh wait, I think that one applies. Yeshiva University is an educational. It's organized under the education law. It's a religious corporation, and the statute, New York City statute, says if you're that, you don't have to listen to this anti-discrimination law. And this is where we get to the problem you alluded to, because while we, you and I, might think Yeshiva University is a Jewish university, a religious corporation, but back in the late '60s, early '70s, they did amend their charter in order to get funding from New York State, Bundy funding. And they did, in doing that, they said that they were not a sectarian institution, a religious institution. Now there's some, you know, there's some fuzziness over here. What exactly did they say? Maybe they said that, you know, they're an educational institution. It's not, they said they weren't religious. They just said they're primarily educational. There are, you know, six ways to Sunday to figure this one out. But um, that's where it comes up. Um, the choice that they made in the late 1960s, at least New York courts have read to mean that they are, they claimed or they argued or they asserted, at least in the late 60s, we're not a religious corporation. If that's true, then they don't qualify for the exception that is in the law. I hope that made sense. Um, and that's where it comes in. You said and that was then, done in order to receive funding. That's why they did it. That's that's the claim. At least that's certainly the claim that the plaintiffs make. Um, Yeshiva University has defended itself and said, no, that's not really what we did. That's not really what it meant. We really said we were an educational institution. And they say one other thing, which is, you know, kind of intuitive. 
don't look at our charter to figure out if it's a religious institution. Why don't you just show up and like, what are we doing? And this is again, you know, I mentioned this before, the what is a religious institution question, right? Which is like, I told you is a puzzle. This is like another one of those things. Like, I don't know. The law says, are you a religious corporation? How are we supposed to figure that out? You know, do we look at the your corporate charter? Do we look at what you do every day? What you call yourself, what you do? These are like um, tough questions. And Yeshiva University has made a very forceful argument. In fact, in some of their papers, they like take pictures of mezuzahs and put them in the briefs to show like our entire campus is replete with religious symbols. So like, and everyone comes here because it's a religious institution and because our curriculum is a dual curriculum. So the idea that you would say because of like a charter change in the late 1960s that we're not, we don't qualify, you've got it dead wrong. And maybe I'll say one more thing on this. I actually think that's one of the reasons that there's so much fight about this. There are lots of reasons, but one of them is, you know, part of the litigation has been for a, a vibrant uh, Jewish community, faith community in the United States being told that their institution is not a religious institution. That's something, quite something to say to like somebody who says, I'm a YU Jew. And somebody says back, I don't know what that means. That's not even a religious institution. Um, there's almost as if it strikes a, a very deep chord um, with members of, I consider I'm a YU grad, members of my community, raises some like, almost like an identity crisis to say that to somebody. So I think that's, that's really why part of this litigation is, you know, quite challenging and quite hard among the many, many other reasons. I'm confused because, and I say this, I'm not a YU graduate, but of course I have tremendous respect for YU. The world I live in is a world which is dominated by YU people and YU as an institution. I still don't understand that when that initial claim that we are not a religious institution, we are a non-sectarian educational institution or whatever was said, it seems like it's trying to have it both ways because that originally was said. And now they're saying, well, now that it doesn't work for us, we didn't really mean it. But for the past 50 years, we've taken benefits as a result of having said that. So what is why you claiming happened over the previous 50 years when they made that initial claim? Haha, we didn't really mean it. I just don't understand what's going on. So let me say a couple of things. You know, there, there, this may be a little tomato, tomato, but you know, what we talked about before about the idea that excluding religion from government funding programs is to strike at their equal citizenship, is to, to undermine them, to say that they're, um, they don't get all the benefits um, that come for everybody else um, with with citizenship. You know, you see a lot of that in this story. And the rule enacted in the late 60s and early 70s that excluded sectarian institutions, the Supreme Court would now tell you that rule was unconstitutional. It was wrong, deeply wrong. And, you know, what it does is it creates certain kinds of incentives um, that I think are deeply problematic that play out in this case. And so, you know, one way to look at this story is, um, you're now seeing the great dangers of this of this strict separationism that existed in the late 60s and early 70s, and that we're kind of still living with, I would say, a constitutional travesty. And there's something that, you know, rubs me the wrong way about that, that, you know, New York State engaged in conduct. Yes, then it was what everyone thought was correct, except for Orthodox Jews, of course. And they engaged in conduct that I would have said then and say now was deeply unconstitutional, and they're... They're living with the coercive force of unconstitutional conduct by New York State that is now generating like present day litigation problems. So, you know, that's one way of thinking about um, what's going on. That doesn't matter a lick for the actual court case. 
But, you know, maybe there is a, a, you know, a lesson learned in all of that. You know, on the flip side. So you're saying, in other words, if Ivy, if I can just make sure I understand, you're saying effectively the claim made back in 1973 or whatever year it was, was a claim that they were forced into making that they didn't really mean because of an unconstitutional requirement by New York State. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. I mean, that's how I feel about it. I mean, back then it wasn't unconstitutional, but it strikes me as deeply wrong. And like the idea that institutions still have to live with the coercive force of state funding and discriminatory funding strikes me as deeply problematic. You know, on the flip side, that doesn't matter for the law, like for the case itself, the litigation. You know, they said what they said. And to me, you know, there's just like a bigger question, like what makes something religious? What, you know, the statute says a religious corporation. And so for the purposes of funding, they may have said, listen, we're not sectarian. But that may not mean that for the purposes of the statute, they're not a religious corporation. You know, it's not clear that the requirements for one were the requirements for the other. And maybe we shouldn't think about them the same way. And, you know, maybe, I don't know, people have different instincts about what makes an institution religious. I'm probably, I actually wrote about this kind of issue like 10, 15 years ago, unrelated to this case, talking about how we shouldn't assess what's a religious institution based on their corporate documents. We should look at what they're doing day in, day out. To me, that seemed more important for the purposes of the law. Then came along this litigation like 10, 15 years later. I was like, hey, what, you know, how should we do this? And I'm like, well, I guess I've kind of thought about this the same way for a while. You know, what are you actually doing? Maybe there's something almost hashkafic in this. Um, what are you actually doing? That's how we figure out, you know, the extent to which you are, your content, your your um, internal internal nature is, is actually religious. Uh, let me just say one more, like, important, probably important thing on all of this. I suspect this litigation is not going to end up focused on anything that we talked about up until now, because mm. there's this other little piece, which is, this is all interesting, at least to me, and like what makes an institution religious and how should we think about Yeshiva University if whether or not it's religious. But like the there's this other thing, the First Amendment that works differently. You know, up until now, I was saying to you, here's really what the issue is. It's about the exception they wrote into the rule. They said, uh, here's the rule. Don't do that unless you're this. But it turns out there are, there are a bunch of other exceptions um, written into the law for like benevolent orders and other ty- types of nonprofits that don't have to abide by um, anti-discrimination law. And under First Amendment doctrine in the U.S., at least present day, the way it works is if you have a rule and you exempt from the rule lots of non-religious organizations, um, the Supreme Court has said you also have to exempt religious organizations. You can't say this is a rule. We give exceptions to, to these folks over here and not to religious institutions. And if that's true, Yeshiva University has a very strong I think, First Amendment argument. Forget about what they wrote in the statute. Are you a religious corporation? Aren't you? New York, New York City, you gave exceptions out to lots of, lots of other folks. You're now also going to have to give this sec- exception out to Yeshiva University. New York courts are probably not going to like this argument. It's just unlikely. But you know, the Supreme Court in the United States has already indicated that it does like this argument. I suspect when it's all said and done, this is probably going to take another year, year and a half, and this eventually goes to the Supreme Court. Justice Alito, um, at one point in a uh, in a dissent, when uh, Yeshiva University approached the Supreme Court for some emergency relief, indicated that there were four justices that wanted to take this case, and likely five that would five in, in find in Yeshiva University's favor because of this rule. You can't give exceptions to some, not to others. And my guess is that's where this case will ultimately end up with some a Supreme Court decision saying. The First Amendment protects Yeshiva University. And, you know, at that point, then Yeshiva University will have to sort through exactly outside the courtroom how it wants to deal with this issue. As we know, they opened up a different club that was 
university sponsored and kind of trying to figure out exactly how um, how it can, what kind of steps it can take to adequately incorporate the LGBTQ community it has on campus um, into the life of the university. Okay, you have really explained a lot that I did not understand before, so I really appreciate it. Avi, I do have a final question for you. And the caveat is that we spoke before we went on the air that you are not someone who lives in Israel. You are not an Israeli legal scholar. Nonetheless, I'm still going to ask you whether you think that the American philosophy of separation of church and state, however it's understood, should be imported or exported to Israel on some level. Do you think that this is a principle which has universal application even in the state of Israel? Or do you think that Israel should be an exception to that? So like a lot, some of my core commitments just don't work in Israel, like um, about what the American constitution should do, the, the concept of neutrality. You know, Israel isn't going to be neutral with respect to religion. That that just doesn't work given its uh, its founding documents, right? It's a Jewish and democratic state. Um, that's almost as if to say, you know, there's something about Judaism that's going to be going on over here and it's not going to be the same for, for other faiths. I mean, there's only one, you know, written into this sentence. So neutrality isn't going to be a useful operating principle, um, I think, um, with respect to you know, how Israel functions. Uh, you know, on the flip side, you know, some of the other tools that, you know, other kind of uh, values that I find um, attractive, uh, you know, might work. Um, concepts of coercion, um, trying to worry about the way in which you have the coercive power of the state being used in order to um, generate religious practice and conduct uh, um, ways in which we're particularly particularly worried about questions of coercion when it comes to non-majoritarian faiths way in which like a majority of a country or majority of a populace might be on board with like a particular kind of prayer or symbol um, but there are minority faiths and we worry about the way in which pressing those in the public square might lead to the coercion on the parts of others who are trying to find their way to be incorporated into the public square into the life of the country. I think those, you know, they have some purchase. And to the extent you find them attractive, you can see importing some of them um, to Israel. But it, you know, it really, I think when you talk about separation of church and state, it really makes clear the way in which the United States isn't trying to establish a particular religion. And it, artic it you know, the, when you dig into it, it provides a series of values and reasons as to why it is the United States doesn't want to do that. And then you have to ask yourself, well, you know, Israel obviously isn't on board with the separationist project, but which of these values do we think still ought to matter um, to a country that isn't just Jewish or isn't just Orthodox? Um, how might those um, kind of those values still be attractive? You know, it's interesting because, orth you know, there are a lot of Orthodox Jews in the United States, I would say, who find a lot of these values attractive, non-coercion, neutrality. Um, they want to live a life as a minority faith community in the United States where the law is animated by those values. And so it certainly gives you pause when you think about, well, wait a minute, you know, here's this other country where a majority, you know, to what extent can we somehow incorporate those into a society that obviously is going to be privileging the state in Israel as a Jewish and democratic state. Now, where, where are the opportunities to bring those in? You know, it's not a very clear answer to your question, but maybe it's the beginnings of an instinct. Okay, well, I appreciate that. And 
I also appreciate your speaking with me today. This was really, really interesting, and I truly learned a lot from everything that you said. There are all sorts of things that I've heard of and perhaps expressed opinions on, and now I realize that I didn't necessarily know what I was talking about, and you really clarified a lot. And I'm sure there's a lot more to say as well, but I genuinely appreciate it. Professor Michael Avi Helfen, thank you for joining me. Thanks for hanging out with me. Subscribe to The Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please visit jewishcoffeehouse.com for other episodes of The Orthodox Conundrum, as well as many other great podcasts, including Intimate Judaism, The Mamanides Minute, Chochmat Nashim, The Francisca Show, and Let My People Eat. I'd appreciate it if you go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review The Orthodox Conundrum. It takes literally two minutes. It's just giving a certain number of stars and writing one or two sentences. Please like the Orthodox Conundrum podcast on Facebook and join our growing Facebook group, the Orthodox Conundrum Discussion Group, where you can feel free to discuss issues in Orthodoxy in an honest and friendly environment. I hope you'll become a Jewish Coffeehouse patron on Patreon. Just click on the link in the description of this podcast, and you can get bonus episodes, Jewish Coffeehouse merch, and more. You'll get special episodes on all sorts of topics that are only available to subscribers, and you'll be helping Jewish Coffeehouse spread our message of a welcoming, intellectually engaged, and honest Orthodoxy. Just join Patreon. It's only a couple of dollars a month, and you can stop anytime, so join today. Finally, do you have a message that needs to get out? Do you want to promote your business, your organization, or your cause? The best way is by producing a podcast, and Jewish Coffee House can make it happen. I have experience producing hundreds of podcasts, both for myself and for satisfied clients. Whether you want to learn everything you need in one day, or relax and record and let me do the heavy lifting, Jewish Coffeehouse Productions will work with you to make it happen and make it even better than you imagined. Let me help you today. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jewishcoffeehouse.com, click on Productions, and sign up for a free consultation. Make your voice heard, promote your cause, sell your product, and engage an audience now. I'm Scott Kahn. This has been the Orthodox Conundrum on jewishcoffeehouse.com.